This is a presentation of the Pitch Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Streetwise Podcast. This is your host, Brock Wilbur. I am host of said podcast and the editor-in-chief of The Pitch. How is everyone doing today? If you are listening to this now, it is, or has previously been, my birthday. What a fun time. Uh, two years ago, my wife threw me a birthday party that was super soft birthday themed. Uh, if you've ever seen this show, Letter Kenny, uh, the second episode, details out a bunch of uh, Canadian dudes living in a rural area who love nothing more than fighting and drinking, uh, have a uh, long-standing tradition of having a super soft birthday. What goes into a super soft birthday? Ponies, feather boas, uh, very fruity drinks, a cotton candy machine, uh, and thusly my wife threw me a super soft birthday in 2019, long before uh, almost anyone that came to the party had ever seen the show Letterkenny. It's on Hulu. You should watch it. There are many seasons. Um, and so last year I was like, oh, I really miss that we couldn't do that again this year, especially since we bought a cotton candy machine instead of renting because we were like, this will be the, the theme forever. Uh, and then you this year again, uh, no super soft birthday. And now I'm starting to think like, what if that was my last actual, like, large birthday party? It's fine if it is. Uh, that is going out on a high note. That's wonderful. Um, but my coworkers decided yesterday to throw me a birthday party in the office. They spent a lot of time coming in early to blow up balloons. Uh, one of my coworkers had never blown up balloon before. As a child, he had a lung issue uh, and an oxygen thing. And so by the time he was 14 and able to do sports, it was long past the time in somebody's life where they blow up balloons for a party. Uh, and so now, in his late 30s, it was the first time somebody had asked him to blow up a balloon. He blew up two balloons, and you can absolutely tell which ones he did because they're they're not great. They're there. And I appreciate, I appreciate the effort on that. But my office was full of balloons, uh, came in, uh, there was zucchini bread made for me, uh, a new treat, uh, books of poetry, a lot of great gifts. Um, and, uh, at some point within that, uh, one of my coworkers who had thrown this asked, so, Hey, what year do you turn today? And I was like, well, I don't turn any year today. I, on Saturday, turn a different year. And that was when they realized that they had thought for weeks now that the 16th was my birthday instead of the 18th. Um, and there was such a silence across the room as they realized they'd stayed up late into the night baking zucchini bread as they'd come in early to fill balloons, some of them having never done such a thing before assembling gifts, including a gift that they'd worked with my wife on that had not shown up yet, but will show up in time for the actual birthday. Uh, so at least that Ted Lasso themed piece of merch knew when my birthday was. And I have tried to explain in so many ways 
It is not a bummer. I really appreciate this birthday. You've taken me out to lunch. What a wonderful time. What a wonderful celebration. It's good to share this, but it is very hard for them to process that they were told multiple times the 18th, and instead it made it into their shared Google calendar as the 16th, and they spent the 15th working very, very hard at it. Um, and thusly, I think the only solution, as they agree, is that moving forward, my birthday will always be on September 16th. That's just how we'll do it, in remembrance, not of the day I was born, but instead of the day that we celebrated me and decided that's just the day to celebrate me. Um, so, uh, I don't know. This is a good follow-up to the super soft birthday. Uh, instead of having a bunch of people over in a bunch of weird uh, Canadian costumes and... Uh, getting too drunk and fighting. A bunch of my coworkers at the pitch did what the pitch is famous for, which is being more enthusiastic than factually correct. Ope didn't mean to reveal uh, the secrets behind the scenes there. And uh, yeah, we did it. We had a wonderful day and uh, I absolved them of their sins. And I look, so I look forward to September 16th next year. It's basically its own holiday for me now. Uh, so, so that's exciting to deal with. Anyway, we have a great episode of the Streetwise podcast today. We have next music corner as per always, but first up, uh, we have a reading from our friend Jason at Stolen Dress Entertainment of the story Pen Pals. Jason, take this magazine story and read it to our pals. Pen Pals. Liberation Lit provides connections for incarcerated populations by Dylan Piles and Matthew Tran. Liberation Lit started last fall as a simple pandemic project. Spurred on by the ways that incarceration has touched our own families, we aim to build relationships with our local incarcerated community through sharing books and literature. Our mission is straightforward. We work alongside inmates to move books, letters, and relationships through bars, intentionally bypassing bureaucracy and institutionalized charity. Incarcerated members lead our program, shaping the book selection and our pen pal program to their interests and needs. In the years since we began, we've matched dozens of pen pals, sent over a hundred books, and exchanged even more letters with incarcerated folks in Kansas and Missouri. As one of our group's members on the inside puts it, these simple exchanges bring awareness, literature, and success to those incarcerated, as well as happiness to those that don't have much in that department. Through this work, we've also come to an undeniable understanding. There's a crisis with our prison system, and it didn't start with COVID-19. The pandemic has laid bare many ugly inequalities shaping our society, and our criminal justice system hasn't escaped notice. While the outside world navigates viral surges, variants, and ever-shifting safety guidelines, Incarcerated individuals have been weathering a neglect that renders outside safety recommendations nearly impossible to enact. The increasingly difficult conditions inside American prisons are not just a symptom of the pandemic, but a baked-in result of ongoing systemic oppression. The fundamental premise of crowding people into cells has provided kindling for deadly health crises since the 1700s with typhus outbreaks. As recently as 2019, the Wichita Eagle reported dire conditions in Kansas state prisons due to overcrowding and staff shortages. Throughout the pandemic, there have been community calls for decarceration in order to remedy infection rates. Decarceration, according to Merriam-Webster Online, is release from imprisonment, or the practice or policy of reducing the number of people subject to imprisonment. Forrest Bain, of the COVID Prison Project, notes that national attempts for decarceration were sporadic and lackluster. Many of the population reductions were fleeting, says Bain. 
as they are reflective of a temporary embargo on new arrivals, rather than a deliberate attempt to meaningfully reduce the number of incarcerated individuals. COVID-19 should not threaten a death sentence for those living behind bars, but due to the way the system has been set up for centuries, this is the reality. Around the country, COVID cases inside prisons are soaring, and the numbers are especially grim in Kansas and Missouri. Recent data from University of California Los Angeles Law's COVID Behind Bars Data Project shows massive case surges in two Missouri facilities during the month of July 2021. On June 20th, there were 33 active cases among incarcerated people in Missouri prisons, notes UCLA researcher Hope Johnson. By July 18th, there were 358 active cases, or a 1.5% positive case rate. The Women's Eastern Correctional Center, WECC, in Vandalia exploded from nearly no cases at the beginning of the month to 179 by mid-July, and the Fulton Reception and Diagnostic Center reported an increase of over 100 new cases during the same period. Even as some vaccinations are made available to inmates, the fight for vaccines and testing in American prisons has been fraught with institutional pushback. This has been a flagrant issue in Missouri where incarcerated individuals were placed in the final phase of vaccination rollout. Meanwhile, Kansas facilities have the fourth-highest case rate in the country, where one in five inmates swabbed test positive. At the beginning of the pandemic, the state's Department of Corrections, DOC, came under fire due to its inability to provide masks and temperature checks to inmates. In an interview with The Intercept, a former correctional officer at Lansing Correctional Facility says that staff knew how bad it would get, and that preventative measures were all essentially ignored and scoffed at by prison officials. When it came to COVID-19 precautions, he says, there was a level of intentional ignorance. Kansas inmates have additionally suffered from unstable private health care contracts. After much criticism from the inside and outside, the DOC removed its private health care provider, Horizon of Tennessee, in the middle of the pandemic, and entered into a new contract with Kansas-based provider Centurion, throwing health care protocol amongst inmates into a poorly defined loop of issues. Missouri and Kansas both report vaccination rates above 50 percent, but Johnson notes that UCLA data suggests Missouri might be misreporting its own vaccination numbers. She adds, Given that a large portion of people in prison, especially staff, are yet to be vaccinated, and that many facility populations are over capacity, more surges in carceral facilities are increasingly likely. Along with outbreaks and lack of prioritization of vaccines in prisons, we've learned of the barriers that incarcerated individuals have to hurdle to access resources many of us take for granted. For example, several months into the pandemic, inmates and staff were still without personal protective equipment and basics like hand sanitizer. One incarcerated individual we've spoken to remembers that early on, prison officials purposely removed access to hand sanitizer because it contains alcohol. The prison system has also made it difficult for incarcerated folks to access government financial assistance, which benefits both individuals behind bars and their families. In 2020, a federal court ruled that inmates were rightfully entitled to CARES Act stimulus money, but the Kansas Department of Corrections had already returned $200,000 worth of checks to the IRS, which were legally owed to incarcerated individuals. When Liberation Lit organized a campaign to send informational packets directly to inmates regarding their eligibility for stimulus money, we found that most institutions had little to no resources in place to help individuals through the red tape. We were reminded, again, that resources readily available to the outside world are made inaccessible to those on the inside by institutions that seem largely unconcerned with the survival of inmates. This never-ending list of systemic ills both propels and exacerbates current challenges faced by those on the inside. During a time when physical isolation and social distancing became public health mandates, prison life continued as normal, 
with inmates sharing meals and common spaces in the hundreds. Incarcerated populations already living in cages together in the thousands were thrust into an impossible position by intentionally neglectful prison staff who ignore signs of folks falling severely ill and private health care providers that often only responded once it was too late. Over the last five years, and well before the pandemic, state cruelty has forced multiple prison uprisings over access to necessities like health care. In early April 2020, an uprising occurred in Lansing where inmates cited specific demands for PPE and personal care supplies. In response, masks and temperature checks were finally administered to the prison population. But we must remember, this could not have happened without organized retaliation to institutional negligence. Even in the face of these failings, our government upholds the status quo of prison policy. While Jackson County fails to fund affordable housing, $250 million is easily put aside to build a new detention center. Incarceration numbers continue to balloon while conditions counterpose the very survival of those being incarcerated. Each year, the city passes a budget apportioning hundreds of millions to fund criminalization and enforcement over opportunity and prevention. Like other areas that feed into the prison system, our struggle is funding human necessities over inhumane punishment. The American prison is a racist and outdated system of punishment that disappears humans as a fix-all for social problems. When those of us on the outside hear about appalling conditions on the inside, we often respond with sadness and frustration, but continue about our day as if prisons are a necessary evil. What can we do instead to support and show solidarity with incarcerated individuals? How do we act, knowing that pandemic conditions are but the newest point on this continuum of crisis? Our incarcerated member C tells us, This variant is very problematic, to say the least. In these trying times when tempers are raised and fears are at the forefront, it is good to have those of like-mindedness, as well as of a similar heart, close. We need an overwhelming coalition of allies on the outside who are willing to engage in the long-term work of supporting and encouraging the imaginations of incarcerated folks in their journey toward liberation. We consider the solidarity work of our book and pen pal program part of the broader struggle to destabilize and divest resources from prisons and the larger carceral system. At the same time, simple human exchanges can have a transformative effect on those inside and outside. One of our members in a local facility has a friend whose wife living in Maine passed away while they were incarcerated together. Our member says, He has been alone in 2,000 miles from his home in Maine. It seems that he has a renewed hope that someone cares after getting a letter. We cannot afford to be apolitical. Liberation Lit imagines a world without prisons, but the work begins with solidarity and support. The ones who will lead us to a world beyond prisons are currently behind bars but the resources they need to lead are withheld from them by a system that profits from their incarceration. To empower our liberation-lit community, we share books by thinkers and organizers such as Angela Davis, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, and Maryam Kaba, who have pushed us towards what the future might look like. We know that working alongside the system necessitates learning about the racist, classist, and profit-making soil that our state institutions have bloomed from, so that we can begin to imagine building something new. From our reading and from the knowledge of the incarcerated, we also know that this system funnels disinvested communities into cells so that we can fund communities, education, jobs, and health care. The only incarceration prevention method that truly works is to dismantle the criminal justice apparatus altogether. Until this wider change can take effect, we can provide books, conversation, and understanding, all while following the recommendations and suggestions of our incarcerated leaders. We're responding to the crisis in American prisons with small actions that we believe will culminate in systemic change. As our incarcerated member Kay says, We are all a collective in this struggle for knowledge and awareness. Books are a huge outlet for all of us in here.
And now it's time for Nick's Music Corner. Uh, this is a special one. This is a promotion for a concert next week. Uh, we have named the band involved in this as our favorite band of 2020. They could easily be our favorite band of 2021. We love them entirely. So if you are in the area and feel like getting out to a show, please follow Nick's instructions. Hello, I'm Nick Spacek, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. For the third year in a row, Kansas City's Black Star Kids will drop a frighteningly amazing collection of songs when Puppies Forever comes out via British label Dirty Hit on October 15th. The second single from the album, Fight Club, sees all three members of the group, Ty, DeAndre, and The Babe Gabe, trading verses back and forth on a track which hits a little harder than what you might expect from previous albums like Surf and Whatever Man. Nevertheless, the group's playfulness and exuberance comes through just as strongly, and paired with Puppies Forever's previous single, Juno, has me champing at the bit for the full album. You can catch Black Star Kids live when they open for Group Love at Liberty Hall on Wednesday, September 22nd, as well as opening Biba Doobie's show at The Truman on Saturday, December 4th. Here's Fight Club. Fight Club! Yeah, it's true. My fist up, clean as done view. Got you looking on my Instagram to see what I do. Yeah, it's true. I never miss a beat. I'm too cool. I'm a hot girl. She you didn't know. Didn't do. Yeah, it's true. I don't do this to impress you. I just talk my shit because I love it when I do. Yeah, it's true. You better hold on to your boo. When I walk in the room, bitches might leave you. Cause I'm fresh to death like a new pair of kicks. I got a lot of sauce and I got a lot of drip. You see me in the room, you know you gotta admit that I caught your
And ladies and gentlemen, that's the Streetwise Podcast. I've been Brock Wilbur. Thank you so much for tuning in. Check out thepitchkc.com for everything that we're doing. You have a few hours left to register for our scavenger hunt this coming weekend. Um, we've put a lot of work into it. It should be fun. We did one in the spring and it was awesome. Hop in on this. There's a $500 grand prize. Do that. More so than that, please focus on the best of KC 2021 running right now. You can vote via our main page. We have over 500 categories. Uh, we have like 100,000 people vote every year. And it's so important because that issue of the magazine, it's just the one that everyone holds every year. When I first came to town, it was the first thing I found. And we were like, we will do everything listed here. It is a great way to give back to people in the community and to make sure that they are represented for all the good work that they do, and just for being, you know, good at their jobs. There's a lot of these categories, like best realtor or best hairstylist, things that, like, you know, no one else is really throwing a parade for most days. Uh, those are there just as it's fun to vote for best haunted house, not in terms of an actual, like, amusement sort of haunted house. The best location that you know that is definitely haunted in Casey. It's important to recognize everyone across the spectrum so get in on that you've got a couple of weeks left to get your votes in and then next month is our huge best of i i, I hope you enjoy it anyway check out the pitchkc.com thank you so much for listening to this thank you for always being a part of our family uh pitching and we'll make it through bye 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 This was a production of the Pitch Podcast Network. The Pitch is Kansas City's independent source for news and culture. Check out thepitchkc.com to see more podcasts from us, including information for how to subscribe to The Pitch or become a sustaining member. Story ideas or feedback? Write to tips at thepitchkc.com. Pitch in and we'll make it through.